Welcome everyone to part two of episode eight and when I say part two it is our second attempt and I must admit Matt I've put my hands up and say it was my fault I had the wrong microphone selected on zoom. Hey and I was I was on form that one as well I can't promise I'm going to replicate the same standard second time round. We've double checked triple checked everything so hopefully guys we're as clear as a whistle today. Yeah, I've made sure there's no Amazon deliveries at the moment, no doorbell's going to go off, <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Welcome to Chewing the Fat with Melf and Grimmy. Two PTs talking about life inside and outside of the fitness industry. Well, today's subject is a little bit of a, a myth buster, and we come up with two different sort of names. We couldn't decide, really. I know that you come up with... Nutribollocks. I like the word Nutribollocks because I experienced a lot of Nutribollocks. I think the one I come up with was chewing the facts and spitting out the truth. So they both are very relevant to today's subject, and we're going to take apart common myths that we come across as personal trainers. Yeah, so... Anyone can make a meme or write something and then people essentially believe it because it is out there. One I come across, Mike, was you need to take protein shakes to build muscle. We see these fantastically well-marketed products with all these guys on there with six packs and these girls with like, like muscles popping out and they're marketing a, a protein supplement. Yeah. And I must admit, in my younger days, I must have bought three or four different products based purely on the outside of the container and didn't really understand what I was buying. And you know what as well, even you look at the, let's say marketed for females, they decide to make the label pink, but it is exactly Mm. the same products as the male essentially whey protein. It's just marketed in a way to appeal to, to women and marketed way to, to appeal men as well. In order to answer this question, generally split it into two parts and the first part is in order to build muscle and I think it's important to look at the fundamentals of how to build muscle so firstly I'd need to take into account the starting point of the individual whether this person was a beginner were they intermediate or were they advanced and that will dictate a lot of the following so you have to take into account weight and resistance based training which involves applying stress to muscle fibers. It's important to take in sleep and rest periods. And nutrition is a major part of that in order to build muscle. And majority of the time, need to be in what's called a calorie surplus or maintenance calories. And as we discussed in a previous podcast, a calorie is basically a unit of energy. Uh, So therefore, a calorie surplus is when the amount of calories that we consume is higher than the amount of calories we burn and maintenance is where they generally even up, okay? I know sometimes there's been research on beginners and being in a a deficit of calories and still being able to build muscle, but majority of the time, maintenance or calorie surplus. And we also need to consider the macronutrients and macros, macronutrients is thrown around quite a lot, posh word basically. Macros. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's It's a posh word 
for the nutrients that we need in larger quantities to provide us with energy. And they are fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And all three are essential for muscle growth. And one of them, which is often sort of forgotten about and labeled as bad is carbohydrates. When we talk about carbohydrates and gaining muscle mass, it's important to have the right amount of muscle glycogen levels in our body so that muscle growth and development is supported. And a research has shown that even one training session at the gym can reduce your muscle glycogen stores, your carbohydrate stores from anywhere between 24 and 40%. So it's essential that you do include carbohydrates when you're trying to build muscle because you won't have energy to train or to support the growth side of things. And just to finalize this last part of the question is protein content and protein is required to build muscle purely because protein is a building block of lean muscle tissue growth and repair. And the daily amounts that we require does vary on the individual. And they're normally calculated, say, in accordance to your body weight. So now that we've covered generally the fundamentals of muscle growth, we can then answer part two of the question, which relates to the need for protein shakes. Okay. Hmm. And we can get protein from different sources. For example, the most common sources are found in meat and eggs. And to supplement that, we can sometimes throw in what's called a protein shake. Then the most common type of protein shake you'll find are what's called whey protein, which is a mixture of proteins isolated from whey which is a liquid material created as a byproduct of cheese and nowadays there are a lot of other alternatives to whey protein including casing and soy protein and question for you matt is being a vegan based athlete what challenges have you found with regards to protein intake firstly i'm a bit overwhelmed you called me an athlete so thank you very much on that oh yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> Being vegan or plant-based for about nine months now, and yeah, it's a lot harder to get adequate amount of protein as easy in your diet. So I do have to supplement with shakes of some sort. Tried out, I'll be honest with them, most of them are quite disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but soy, hemp, pea protein, all, yeah. have, they're all nice additions to adding protein to my diet because generally I always find it a little bit harder getting adequate amount of protein from the diet because the absence of meat and dairy and yeah. a lot of my protein comes from something called soy which is found yeah. actually a lot of things and then also i've been using something that's not really on the uk market at the moment it's called seitan now if you're um, a celiac or gluten intolerant don't touch it because you may blow up because it's a hundred percent gluten <laughs> well, okay <laughs> no, you'll blow up into a thousand pieces because <laughs> it's gluten um, yeah. has the same equivalent grammage protein per chicken. They are not complete proteins, which means they don't have a complete amino acid profile. Mm. So without going into too much, sometimes I have to supplement certain amino acids yeah. so I get a complete protein profile with every meal. Yeah. And what would you recommend for someone who's just done up being a vegetarian or, or vegan and struggling with protein content? How would you... What's the main bit of advice you'd perhaps give them, really? Yeah, so the way I try to organize my protein a little bit is, first of all, I sort of ditched this two grams per kilo of body weight because it was, a, you do not need that amount of protein unless you may be a far-end athlete. Um, so for me personally, I would organize all my protein meals at the start of the day. I would work out 
how many grams of protein I'm going to get throughout the day. And then I kind of fit every other meal around it. So I'd look at probably four to five servings of protein per day and then fit all the other bits, all the rice and the pastas all around it. I've made quite a few changes in my past 12 months and to include a lot more veggie-based meals. And I think once you get over the concept of you have to have like tons of protein in every meal, you can actually make very enjoyable meals, but still get a decent amount of protein in them, can't you? Yeah, I think it's where we all grew up in this country, especially me and you as well, always having a piece of meat as the yeah. of every meal. And when mm. that's so ingrained into you, it's very hard to switch the concept of not having that anymore. Definitely. And, you know, I do get asked, you know, do I need to start buying protein shakes? And majority of the time, I generally say no to a lot of my clients because I don't necessarily need it. And you can get enough protein in your diet from natural sources. And I myself take protein shakes to supplement it. I think for me, it's more out of a habit. I find for me, they digest quite easily before or after training. So I find that helps me. Data from 49 studies with 1,800 participants showed that dietary protein supplementation significantly enhanced changes in muscle strength and size during prolonged resistance-based training in healthy adults. They said that increasing age reduced the efficacy, but training experience also increased the efficacy of it. So people who are more experienced in training, they found it more benefited them. So which goes back to the point we mentioned about when people were starting at the gym, it's not part of like the gym starter package. It's, you don't necessarily need to have like a tub of whey protein to start, you know. Uh, I love that meme. Yeah, I love that meme. It's like a gym starter package, like creatine, yeah. protein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they did mention actually with, uh, <laughs> with the same study, with the protein supplementation, that they said that protein takes amounts greater than 1.6 grams times uh, your body weight in kilos that do not further contribute induced gains in lean mass. So saying anyone who took generally 1.6 times or greater than 1.6 times their body weight of protein. So for example, if I weighed 100 kilos and I took 180 grams of protein per day, and when we say grams of protein per day, we don't mean the weight of the food. For example, a chicken breast make weigh say 150 grams but the amount of protein in it will only be about 25 grams so don't think right i have to have 200 grams of say chicken breast to get 200 grams of protein the downsides of protein shakes is they say it's not essential for an everyday athlete the clever marketing may induce you to overspend some products have a large amount of sugar in it just to bulk up a little bit so just be wary of that too and you can't always guarantee the quality of it because it's processed and the last one for me is that it doesn't taste as good as food. So if you don't have to take it, don't always feel the, the need to do it, Matt. Kind of nicely takes us on to our next point. Generally, proteins associated with getting bigger or getting more muscles. And one thing over the last sort of 10 years as a PT is that a lot of women come to me and they one concern is when starting weight training, will I get bulky when lifting weights? And I know you're going to debunk this when I'm talking about the difference between men and women, I don't want to sound sort of sexist or maybe this next thing's going to sound ageist almost, but I think this whole notion that women get bulky when they start lifting, like one day they just wake up and look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, is, yeah, I mean, is vastly accepted now that women can lift and not get bulky. But I think there is above, maybe the above generation, that maybe still believe this is true. 
because it was so ingrained into us, women should be doing dance aerobics and men should be lifting in the gym as well. And it's very, it's shifted in the last few years, especially where women have lifted weights more and it's pr- produced some tremendous results. But first and foremost, it comes down to hormones. Now you've got hormones such as growth hormone, testosterone and estrogen or anabolic hormones. They help us build muscle. Then you've got adrenaline, cortisol and glucagon, which are catabolic hormones, which actually decrease our muscle. Now the main one there is going to be testosterone, that men have far more testosterone than women do. Women's most dominant hormones will be estrogen and progesterone, which during the menstrual cycle are going to be slightly different in each phase. So put it into context, men's testosterone ranges between 270 and 1,070 nanograms per deciliter of blood. And normal normal testosterone ranges between 15 to 70 nanograms per deciliter. So just saying that probably doesn't make much sense to people, but we're looking at about one one tenth to one twentieth difference in testosterone. Wow. Yeah. Um, Obviously, this can range from individual to individual. You know, some women do have higher testosterone and some men have low testosterone as well, but generally it is around that region. So you ask an 18-year-old in the gym who's just started lifting how hard it is to build muscle. And the 18-year-old isn't going to be in their prime, jumped up on testosterone. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, naturally, not synthetically, obviously. No. So for women to essentially build muscle like men it is unheard of unless there is the presence of synthetic hormones such as yeah. anabolic steroids. The majority of women that I've trained have, you know, for body transformation, the base training is resistance-based training, and it really helps women build a little bit more muscle in their body and essentially changes their physique. So I think it's an absolute must if someone is trying to change their body shape, change the way they look, resistance-based training is the go-to. It's almost like the proof in the pudding. Once you start trying it and you feel the results from it, then it takes away that whole, actually, I'm not going to get big. I'm actually going to get leaner. Hundred mm, percent, and I think psychologically it gives you a sense of achievement. Stepping in the gym, um, almost that feeling of empowerment of becoming stronger. I think that is really important. I've seen a lot of people switch from, say, a body transformation goal, a fat loss goal, to actually a performance goal through the enjoyment of training weights. Gives you so many different avenues to get stronger and fitter. Mm, definitely, and it's good fun. So, Mike, I've got a really good question for you. When I was training for the London Marathon earlier this year, um, completely out of my knowledge base about hydration and electrolytes and all these sort of things, and I got told by various people, just drink water for training. I got told, you know, use gels. I got, you know, glucose tablets, Lucasade. Um, what are your thoughts when it comes to just drinking water for hydration? Generally, on average, about 60% of the human body is water, give or take. One of the benefits of water is that it maintains our blood volume, which regulates body temperature and it's involved in muscle contractions. So it's kind of important for when we are exercising, whether we do running, weight training or anything really. And when people say hydration, and the way I see it is hydration in relation to our body is described as the state at which our body has sufficient water in its tissues. It's such an important part of our everyday lifestyle. And the benefits of staying hydrated 
can contribute towards say healthy skin, uh, good breath, supple joints, a cooler body temperature, lower levels of toxins that can affect organs such as kidneys and liver and like healthy digestion. So therefore it aids in weight management and muscle management too. So if you're looking to lose weight or gain weight, water is going to, hydration is going to be a big part of that too. And dehydration, uh, the way I see it is when our body is losing more fluids in comparison to what we're putting in. And signs of dehydration range from headaches, bad breath, feeling fatigued, an increased thirst, feeling bloated and darker colored urine. As always, I normally throw in a, a crazy name. And this week, according to Shakundrup, Asker and Michael Gleason, they all wrote a paper. I believe it's called Dehydration and its Effects on Performance. And they found that a loss of sweat equal to 2% of body weight causes a noticeable decrease of physical and mental performance. Losses of 5% or more of body weight during physical activities may decrease the capacity for work by roughly 30%. For such a small amount of loss, it, it does have a, a massive effect. And therefore, like restoring fluids maintains normal muscle function, helps prevent a decrease in physical performance and reduces the risk of heat stress, particularly in the summer. In the cases of scenarios whereby a large activity is undertaken, causing the body to sweat out vast amounts of electrolytes, water alone wouldn't just do the job. Mm. So we need to consider what we'd need to replace those lost electrolytes. Like for example, like you could be a marathon runner in hot temperatures. Electrolytes, their job is they balance the amount of water in our body. Okay. And they essentially balance our body's acid base pH level. And they assist with moving nutrients around our, into our cells and moving waste out of our cells. And we need to make sure that our nerves, muscle, and heart and the brain work the way it should. So they play a massive part. And electrolytes include sodium, calcium, potassium, chloride, phosphate, and magnesium. And we get them from foods, but we can also get them from fluids. So people use sports drinks that include both carbohydrates and electrolytes. And normally it is recommended for exercise lasting longer than 60 to 90 minutes. Okay, so if you're doing a half an hour workout, it's not likely you're going to need an electrolyte drink to be honest and sodium in the sports drinks helps the body absorb and retain the fluid and utilize the carbohydrates so you were doing your your marathon training that perhaps after an hour or hour and a half did you notice a difference in performance if you weren't hydrating yourself i think i learned the hard way i think the towards the start of the program when i done like a my first 14 miler Oof. it's embarrassing but i hit the wall in 14 miles no gels out with me no water because I was like, I don't need water. I ain't carrying water. It's a, it's a ball lake carrying water. Mm. And then literally, I think about mile 12, my training partner at the time, Krusty, he literally dragged me for the last two miles. And because I was just totally depleted. But mm. even after that, I used a bit of a system with gels. I don't know what your thoughts is, but I experimented with different gels because some yeah. agreed with me, some didn't. I've taken a gel every 45 minutes of yeah. an hour. And that actually really helped me out. Gels or liquids or tablets, it purely depends on what suits you. Some people preach about gels, some people preach about different sort of fluid intakes. And one thing to mention here, guys, is that sometimes if you're going out for your daily walk for an hour and you're not sweating loads and you're not, you know, putting your body under stress, doesn't mean you have to get back and smash down a Lucas Sport. <laughs> you know, so just it's purely when you are sweating 
lows and you can feel like your body depleting itself a little bit. There are, however, a few common hydration misconceptions. So the one we hear quite a lot is that in order to stay hydrated, your urine needs to be clear. And this is not always the case. It says that you want your urine color to be light shade of yellow. However, if you notice it gets darker as the day goes on, it could be a sign that, that you need to take on more fluids. If you find your urine is consistently clear, it may be a sign that you're actually drinking too much and can lead to a loss in your electrolytes. Okay? Mm. You know, the NHS goes about drinking six to eight cups of water a day. It's a generalized assumption. So you've got to take into account the activity, the size, the age, and how much you sweat. The rule of thumb generally is the bigger you are, the more active you are, then you require more water than the average person. So on the other side, small people who don't sweat as much may require less water. So use your common sense, listen to your body. If you're thirsty, have a drink. And we've listed a few early signs of dehydration. Just look out from really from there. And severe dehydration won't just instantly happen. So you're not going to suddenly just think, oh, I'm just dehydrated massively. So our body is extremely resourceful, like, like you spoke about when you were training and will always protect its vital organs. However, don't leave it too long to experience these symptoms. So just be proactive. Like you just mentioned before about your gels, just being proactive. I like to say always change the oil on the car before it blows up. Oh, yeah. I like, I like that. that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I've got that one. Yeah. <laughs> and talking about taking on fluids and taking on calories and all that sort of stuff as well, when people decide they want to lose some weight, a number that's thrown around about is 1,200 calories. That's sort of standard amount? Yeah, that's it, 1,200 calories. That's the, uh, that's the standard amount everyone needs to eat to lose weight. <laughs> I'm just rolling my eyes here. I know it's a podcast, you can't see me rolling my eyes, but yeah. Um, and that's the thing, when everyone does attempt to diet, maybe they assume 1,200 calories is like the magic number when it comes to losing weight. And it is a very, very aggressive calorie deficit. As Mike explained earlier, the difference between a surplus, you know, eating more calories than you're expending, and a deficit would be the other way. And 1,200 calories is a very, very severe deficit. And essentially, it would work, but probably not for very long. So yeah, first of all, we're going to go over something called leptin and other hormones such as ghrelin, also known as the hunger hormone. This acts in a way that when you are really hungry and you start eating, then you can't stop overeating. So this essentially becomes a binge, which a lot of people tend to find on a diet such as a 1200 calorie diet or another low calorie diet. Um, and this is this vicious cycle of almost over restriction and overindulging and essentially leads to poor eating habits, possibly even eating disorders as well. Now, leptin is a hormone that regulates when you're full. Essentially, you know, when you're, you're piling through your first dominoes, leptin will uh, signal to the brain that you're full. So don't go into that second set and then into the cookies. Oh, unless you've got John's. Oh, I prefer Papa John's as well, mate. And I always <laughs> two because you think, I like a bit of both. I don't want to commit too much to one in case it ain't the best. <laughs> but yeah, so well, yeah, when leptin and signaling is impaired, the message to stop eating doesn't get through to the brain. So it doesn't realize you have enough stored energy. In essence, your brain thinks it's starving, so you're driven to eat. 
Leptin levels are also reduced when you lose weight, which is one of the reasons why it's hard to maintain weight loss in the long term. The brain thinks you're starving and pushes you to eat more. So essentially, if you're eating a little bit less, you can have a drop, to, drop in leptin and it's going to push you to eat more. Going back to the days when you were into your bodybuilding training, did you ever experience these sort of feelings of really severe sort of hunger cravings? Yeah, I think where you, if you cut all the food out you like, because you are on 1200 calories and on 1200 calories, there's not much leeway is there for any fun, enjoyable foods that you actually like in there. It is very like yeah. fish and rice cake. Then we've got to look at things like training as well. I mean, essentially, if you're giving your body less food, but you know, you're not going to have enough energy to lift, to move, to probably get in a good place when you train. So by default, if your training's gone a bit downhill, then you're not going to expend much calories when it comes to training. Other considerations, such as your NEAT or your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, this is your daily movement. So subconsciously, if you're giving your body less energy, then it's going to put out less energy essentially and you're going to sit down a little bit more you're going to be less inclined to go and listen to this podcast on a walk your expenditure goes down a little bit and then even another consideration on top of that would be something called tef this is called thermic effect of food now in order for your body to break down food when you eat it it uses a certain percentage of them calories that break down the food because every action within the body requires stored energy i.e calories so for foods that are predominantly fat-based dietary fat-based which are about nine calories per gram the thermic effect of food is about 0.3 percent of the calories are digested in the process carbohydrates are about four calories per gram and the thermic effect of food is between five and ten percent and protein provides four calories per gram also and it's thermic effective food is a whopping 20 to 30 percent so when we're essentially dieting, we're all a favorable higher protein diet is always going to be a little bit more favorable. If I was sitting here thinking, right, okay, well, I was going to go for a 1200 calorie diet, but what number is going to be ideal for me? I mean, what considerations would I have to take into account if I'm one of the listeners here? Yeah, so I'm just going off that last thermic effect of food is if you're giving your body less food, essentially, you are expending less. So with all these last points I've just brought up, your expenditure is going to be quite low. So the starting point, I was thinking if you're going to lose weight, is do not change your diet initially to begin with. Keep it the same. I know it sounds absolutely insane. Keep it the same. Focus on increasing your expenditure. Go out for a half an hour walk every single day. Maybe take up a little bit of an exercise routine. And already from there, you haven't changed your diet, but you've created a void, which is essentially your deficit and thus you should lose weight and over time then you can focus things on like improving your diet you could bring your calories um down just like just slightly the trick is with dieting i was thinking as well is don't change your diet too much too soon you can get in this full sense of security of like changing everything about your diet and making yourself miserable as possible with the most boring boring unenjoyable unimaginative foods but the reality is it's not going to be sustainable and it's not going to be enjoyable. So literally, look at your diet. Look at maybe very small things you can change. I'm a big fan of this term called low-hanging fruit. So I worked with a client a few years back and looked at a food diary. And yeah, she was eating probably a surplus in calories. So we had to make a 
deficit somehow. Now, this client worked behind a desk eight hours a day, was you know driving to work two hours, you know driving back two hours, could not get enough expenditure for the day. So we looked at a food diary. And I found this like one of them Starbucks Frappuccino whipped cream. You know the drill, Mike. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. Oh, I'll yes. You, I'll see you walking around with one of them bad boys. You know, <laughs> yeah. Hoodie yeah. on, like no one could see me. Yeah. These big, like, you know, it was about, you know, about 400 calories in this iced coffee. So I was like, okay, we'll, we'll sort that for a black coffee. Can you do that? Yeah, sure. No problem. Done that. That was the deficit sorted. Yeah. Without Definitely, any change to the meals a less stressful option than saying, right, okay, well, no booze, no takeaways, no ice cream, and then straight away that person is just miserable. Yeah. I think the way you've got to look at, at dieting is what could you drop in your day that you wouldn't be fussed about? Um, like I know there's been this massive craze of intermittent fasting the last few years, but essentially all it is is calorie restriction. So mm-hmm. if I had a client who was really busy in the morning that did not have time to eat breakfast, I'll go skip breakfast because just by doing that, you've made a deficit. You haven't changed anything else in the day. Just taking breakfast out. Yeah. And that's another myth as well. The whole, you have to have breakfast if you want to lose weight. And that's not necessarily true, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, your overall energy intake over the course of a week rather than a day compared to your overall expenditure is probably the more important thing rather than what you do essentially day to day or meal to meal. I've overeaten by oh, 250 calories. Oh, oh, you know what? Start again next Monday. So yeah. it's not about that. Yeah, actually, quite oh. interesting, Mike. I've, I've probably done this for the last few years with my nutrition-only clients. I've actually started their food journal on a Saturday. Mm. So if they were to overconsume by a little bit on a Saturday and Sunday, because, you know, let's not beat around the bush. We chill out a bit more at weekends, like most people. But if there is an overconsumption... For yourself. <laughs> <laughs> If there's no food consumption at the weekend, when it's more than likely to happen, we can rein it in during the week a little bit. Our bodies will react differently. Our bodies will give us an extra 500 calories just to, <laughs> just to chill out with. No, it doesn't happen like that. No. And it's nice to change the mindset, attack it in a different mind that you don't have to wait till Monday to make that change. Yeah. So perhaps look at it, like Matt said, a weekly intake rather than perhaps a daily one. It takes that pressure off if every day having to be perfect. Yeah. Monday... Mm. Don't start it because, you know, anyone can be good on a Monday because you've eaten shit mm. all weekend. So yeah. it's easy to be good on Monday because you feel a bit, bit sick from overconsuming the amount of calories. Start whatever day you choose. Yeah. That's a nice way to end today's podcast. I think we've covered off four subjects, both mm. in a aesthetic and performance-based elements. I know today, Matt, is your turn to finish off the Ooh. podcast or conclude and give us some wise words. Oh, keep it real lucky in Bill. Keep it real lucky in Bill. That's the one. No miss. <laughs> no miss there, I tell you. Um, as well, guys, thank you very much for the support with the podcast. We've appreciated ever so much. Like, you cannot believe how many people were badgering about this podcast, Mike, weren't they? That it wasn't on yeah. Spotify or iTunes. I know, yeah. And again, I've made sure the microphone is plugged in properly today. And going forward, I will learn how to plug in the microphone better. <laughs> Small things, small things, eh? Well, for me, as usual, stay safe, stay well. What he said. <laughs> <laughs>